When Blanche and Dorothy decide to help Rose get the award they know she deserves, they go a little too far, lying about her achievements. So when Rose wins said award, she is surprised to say the least. As time goes on, their lie begins to snowball, and they will have no choice but to tell Rose the truth. Will Rose still be St. Olaf's Woman of the Year? Will Blanche ever get that house call from Dr. Weston? Will Sophia's flashing spoil the food? Find out all of that and more in today's episode, Yokel Hero. Thank you for the friendship. We've come so far and traveled wide. Oh, you're my best friends. I could never lie. I love when we party, dance, and sing, and laugh just doing our things. No matter the mysteries that come and go. Either there was a baseball game or the girls are doing some sports-themed cosplay. Rose and Blanche have come home, each wearing yellow baseball hats that are just a little too small with the bills pointing up. Rose is showing some leg in white shorts and a not-matching-the-hat yellow shirt. Blanche is in one of her casual sweatshirts, the neck striped to match her pinstriped baseball pants, and both are looking adorable. And then there's Dorothy. Maybe she didn't play or she's just not playing along as she is in a light blue half-zip sweatshirt over a blue tee and gray pants. Her yellow hat has been turned into a fan as the charity softball game was, yet again, held on the hottest day of the year. Which, if that's true, the temp was in the mid-90s with, I believe, about a 2,000% humidity. By how hot, sweaty, and exhausted Blanche is, you'd think she had been playing a different sport involving different balls. High lie? <laughs> Something like that. It's popular down there. <laughs> uh, I mean, in Miami, not in the genital area. Oh, the heat of it all leaving her unfulfilled. The only moment of the game she enjoyed was when she stole second base, sliding her body, erotically no doubt, under a uniformed man. Realizing how hot it is in the house, Rose goes to turn on the AC, and that's when she realizes it is busted. To solve multiple problems, the girls head into the kitchen, where they'll find the AC repairman's phone number and the ice cream. They aren't the only ones with the idea of a cold treat to cool them down. Overheated Sophia is in her blue and floral robe, or at least she's halfway in it. The front half is exposed to the open refrigerator. As she sways back and forth, hoping to cool herself down, she's giving the leftovers a good show. And in our viewing, I noticed a little continuity moment where... When they first walk in, her nightgown is showing under the robe, and maybe they realized that that made the joke not as funny because you couldn't really imply she was naked. And then when they cut to the further shot again, the nightgown is, you can't see it. It's tucked up in the robe again. Fun fact. I heard that Estelle Getty demanded to be fully nude at that time. (laughs) Always. She said, I don't care what the audience thinks. I'm in the scene. I'm hot. Put me on HBO. Please. (laughs) Dorothy doesn't care about her flashing mother. She wants Sophia to close it before the food is ruined by both temperature and visuals. Sophia takes that to mean her robe, which she then slams closed. After being yelled at by Dorothy again, she closes the fridge. 
With her naked roommate out of the way, Blanche can get to the ice cream. With it, she brings out a mysterious brown paper bag. Oh, that's Sophia's. She's frozen her undies so she can keep her grundle cool. Like with her son Phil, she'd be happy to loan Blanche a pair, but they would melt so fast. You know, with how hot she gets. With a charming smile, Blanche shrugs off Sophia's joke, and Sophia leaves the kitchen. She passes Rose on her way out, just as Rose reads some exciting news she received in the mail. Sophia's lack of response and lack of interest in returning to the kitchen to find out what Rose was squawking about is peak Sophia. Without being asked, Rose shares that she's been nominated for the huge honor of being named St. Olaf's Woman of the Year. Dorothy's face almost looks annoyed. Blanche is only concerned for the newest issue of TV Guide arriving in the mail, something Coco and I are always looking out for. Except nowadays you don't get it weekly. It's a monthly magazine. Kind of ruins it. Yeah. There's something nice about... Man, I miss the old the TV little. guide, too. The little guy. The Reader's yeah, Digest Yeah, because now it's size. like not really people magazine size, but not old school TV guide. It's, it's like in a, the middle. It's like a thin Us Weekly. It's like something that would come in the newspaper on a Sunday. Oh, yeah. That's what... Uh, yeah. And when I grew up... where I grew up in, in LA and they had... That's what was in the newspaper. It was like a little... Yeah. The a entertainment little, the TV, It was called the TV Times. Yeah. I actually have a copy in the, in of that magazine in my in the home right now. Why? Because it had a, it? it had a drawing on it that I really liked, or a painting from the the cartoon, the '90s cartoon Gargoyles. That's cool. Stone by day, warriors by night. We were betrayed by the humans we had sworn to protect, frozen in stone by a magic spell for a thousand years. Now here in Manhattan. The spell is broken, and we live again. Remember that cartoon? I do. The big main, like, kind of bluey yeah. purple guys is is crouching over, and that's cool. And I loved it, and I still have it. <laughs> Thank you, TV Times. <laughs> While her friends dismiss her joy, Rose keeps gushing. She can't believe a person like her would even be considered for what she sees as the highest honor the city can give. In her eyes, she isn't qualified to win such a thing. For Dorothy, it just goes to show that if someone like Dan Quayle can be the vice president, everything is possible for anyone. Like how suckling on the teat of lies of the 45th president led to the dizzying drama of George Santos, or whatever his name is. Vice President Dan Quayle is best known not for being the running mate of George H.W. Bush in 1989, but more so for his assisting a child while spelling well, misspelling, potato, while at a school, among several other gaffes that only made it easier for Clinton-Gore to win in 92. And no, there is no E at the end of potato. And add, add one little bit on the end. Just make it potato. Add a little bit to the end. Spell that, spell that again. You're right phonetically, but put it up. There you go. All right. He developed a speech impediment. He made mistakes. Quail on the Holocaust. It was an obscene period in our nation's history. No, not our nation's, but in World War II. I mean, we, we all lived in this century. I, did, I didn't live in this century, but in this century's history. I have as much experience in the Congress as Jack Kennedy did when he sought the presidency. Senator, I serve with Jack Kennedy. I knew Jack Kennedy. Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. 
Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. This guy's a heartbeat away from the presidency, and it turns out that he's dumb. I feel like that was the first time maybe that I realized adults could be wrong. Mm, you know, yeah. I, I never, I don't remember. Yeah, nothing or like that Or public humiliation or, or expectations of politicians. And just like in just a huge gaffe, like a yeah. huge blunder. Yeah. <sighs> That's in, when my American dream died. <laughs> in all fairness, it is tricky and weird that to add an S to a word, you add an E. That's weird. But also, he should have known that. I mean, he's seen the word probably thousands of times in his life. <laughs> his name's Dan Quayle, for God's sake. Gretchen Lillyhammer was celebrated after running into the burning library and saving all three of their books. This information stuns Dorothy, not the running into a fire, but that the library only had three books. So she asked the obvious question, and when everyone has read those three books, then what? But that's an issue the people of St. Olaf have yet to encounter. Strangely, there's a knock at the back slash garage slash secret door, which Dorothy leaves to answer. Rose puts on her best act of, what an honor just to be nominated. But we all know how competitive she is. So the act doesn't last long, and soon she's telling Blanche, I want that sucker bad. I have a question for you. Coco. What's were the books in the library? <sighs> I'm going phone book. That's good. Uh, I'm going little engine that could and either the Bible or a dictionary. Bible's probably too hard to read. And then they don't have a dictionary. Yeah, no. You know what? Maybe they have. Is there like a famous a Nordic dictionary. tale? Like maybe the Odyssey? They're like, that's like, uh, no, like the thing uh, they read. Beowulf maybe? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> they can't read anything else. So they're like, oh, Beowulf. Yeah, oh yeah it's God. Viking tales, a phone book, <laughs> and maybe like a, just like a Highlights magazine. Oh, yeah. That's, that's the fun. third one. And it's it's been gone through. Yeah. <laughs> quite a lot. All, all the puzzles are solved. They don't have a subscription. They have one. <laughs> all the or what's boys different? life, whatever those were back. What's when different they were in these pictures? They're oh, all I circled. I love those. And they're all wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rose leaves Blanche with her ice cream and Dorothy returns with Fred, who is the repairman. Why did he knock at that door? So he parked in the driveway or at the curb and then went around the back of the house? If you listen to our other show, Murder in the Rain, you know how Coco and I feel about sneaky repairmen or maintenance men or those that pose as them. Don't even get Coco started. Yeah. A handwritten sign that says handyman. <laughs> More like death man. Yeah. Diet, my handymans. <laughs> It's always the handyman. It's always the handyman. They have the keys. And the, and the trust. And you're just doing sort of like a little cash deal. And then you're in a barrel of long clippings. <laughs> Tale as old as time. <laughs> Valente Rodriguez, playing Fred, is a director, producer, and actor. Ah, so close. He has 70 acting credits to his name. Working with the girls was only his second role, and he's still working today, appearing most recently in Lopez vs. Lopez. In between those gigs, he appeared in The Gracias, Father Stew, High School Musical, The Musical, The Series, where he plays the principal, Murphy Brown, McFarland, USA, Cristela, The Mentalist, Wizards of Waverly Place, Shameless, It's Complicated, The Ugly Truth, 500 Days of Summer, The House Bunny, The New Guy, X-Files, and a few of our favorites, Deep Blue Sea and 
volcano. Oh, I would love to see Deep Blue Sea versus Volcano. Ooh. Write that out. <laughs> Speaking of Deep Blue Sea, hit it. Regardless in the deep blue underwater walls, half man, half shark, my jaws don't fall. Deep is blue as my hat is like a shark's fin. Deep is blue as my hat is like a shark's fin. Deep is blue as my hat is like a shark's fin. And I can kind of picture him. I think he was maybe one of the... Um, I feel in Volcano, he was one of the uniformed guys. Maybe he was down in the subway or something. Yeah, or maybe he was working in like the command center with Don Cheadle. Yeah. And that I love that we're talking about it. Like everyone knows Volcano. Um, yeah. Uh, Our generation. But I think I think maybe. Yeah, I don't yeah, I don't remember. Uh but his face is is totally familiar yeah. to me. I think in Deep Blue Sea he plays one of the guys in the who dies in the uh, above water. The above water. No lab. spoilers. He and, he and Ada Taturo <laughs> die at the same time. I think my head is like a shark's fin. Yeah. Well, I could talk about Deep Blue Sea for a couple of days. I feel like the budget, the music video, the LL Cool J ness of it, the special effects, the outrageous storyline. Those sharks are very cool. The real one, the real like rubber ones. Those are awesome. <laughs> those are scary, man. LL Cool J's in an oven. <laughs> fight trying to get away from a shark oh it's terrifying it almost eats his bird it does eat his bird <laughs> it eats his bird you ate my bird named bird wasn't it like a huge budget or a, a huge. flop huge i know i think it made money lo cool j chops his way out of that oven with an with a little tiny axe he chops up into another oven above the oven uh, the oven <laughs> to get away from the shark did you see that in the theater I saw it at a preview screening like a year before it came out <gasps> when there was still like temporary effects and stuff. Wow. So like the the final climactic thing where one of the main characters gets like bitten in half looked like uh, one of those wooden um, posy, posy dolls that you can buy at Ikea, <laughs> you know, yep. like for sketching. Yeah, it they like had that. it like portioned out. Yeah. And it just yeah. looked like it just looked like sections of body <laughs> and, a, and like a yeah big, big blob sharp. Did you? Sharp. Yeah. Did you talk to them afterwards? Like, was it a focus group? Yeah, it was one where they, yeah, they, they you just fill out a thing. I never got picked for a focus group because I never, ever made eye contact with anybody. <laughs> but you'd have to fill out like a like a questionnaire at the end, what you liked oh, about it and everything. Okay. And the um, Rennie Harlan, director, was there. Uh, Rennie Harlan did Deep Blue Sea? Yeah, and he was sitting in the back of the theater, yeah. Yeah, surprised. Oh, my God. I'm not. I didn't do realize he's to, my favorite. We have to do a Rennie Harlan podcast, I think. Yeah. He's my favorite bad movie director. He makes the best. He makes the best bad movies. Mindhunters. Also favorite. starring LL Cool J. Oh, that's right. I think he, what does he do? Oh, he tips a man out of a wheelchair in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Heroically. <laughs> Ooh. Happy to see they'll soon have cool air. Blanche has to share that in the three minutes since she's been home, the heat has been making her crazy. Almost as crazy as the old lady Fred saw when he went creeping through the backyard and caught a glimpse of the next door neighbor. The old broad that lives there is beating the heat by jumping through a sprinkler in her undies. Dorothy quickly puts the pieces together. There's no old lady that lives next door, so she was probably only half surprised to see it was her mother who was putting on the show. Scampering off, Dorothy leaves to cover Sophia up as she transitions us to the next scene. I guess Fred didn't do a very good job, probably because he bought that coverall suit at Home Depot, threw on a patch and just goes door to door waiting for someone to answer that is expecting a repairman, not knowing they're opening the door to a killer. 
Or maybe I'm just a little too immersed in that true crime world, but oh well. Anyway, Dorothy, in a flowy light pink blouse and white pants, is miserable in the heat. I mean, shorts and a tank top would be a good start as far as comfort goes, but I digress. She joins Blanche and Sophia, who are already on the couch. Sophia in her purple with white pinstripes house dress. Again, short sleeves might be good while she's knitting. Blanche is in a matchy-matchy pant and long-sleeve shirt combo, the color of which I can only describe as mint gray. No one is suggesting a clothing change, but Blanche has another idea to help beat the heat. Dorothy should just imagine herself in a cool place. For example, a snow-covered Colorado ski resort. That's actually not a bad idea, Blanche. G-tummo meditation, as used by skilled Buddhist monks, can lead to them actually raising their core body temperature up to over 100 degrees. Visualization can make you feel cooler or warmer, but it doesn't actually change your temperature. I, for one, like to watch cold movies in the summer. Coco, you may remember from a couple years ago, we had that horrible heat wave for like three days and we watched the coldest movies we could think of. So we watched Alive. I think we watched The Edge. Oh, The Thing. Did we watch The Thing? Oh, we might have. I think that was one of them. Yeah. I do remember that. And it helped. It did. We closed all the curtains, had the air on as best we could. Also, some great advice from this episode of the of the of Golden Girls. When you're super hot and thirsty, you want to, to eat a bunch of like frozen sugar milk. Yes. That's going to be good going down <laughs> and coming out. It doesn't take long for Blanche's visualization to take a turn. Starting at the ski resort, she's soon encountering Fritz, the ski instructor. The two have gone from cooling off in the snow to warming up by a fire while laying on a bearskin rug, drinking brandy. Now Blanche is even hotter than before. And that is why she wasn't allowed to borrow Sophia's ice panties. As a silky yellow and floral robe-wearing rose makes her way past everyone in the living room, Dorothy gives her a simple good morning, which is met with a startling sob from Rose. Blanche just can't understand why Dorothy would be so mean. The three get up and join Rose in the kitchen to see why she's so upset. Asking what's wrong, Rose tells them she's realized she is the most boring person alive, to which an almost concerned Sophia asks if something happened to TV host, writer, and all-around talent Regis Philbin. You'd think with a name like Regis Francis Xavier Philbin, he'd be more exciting, but, you know... Before he was yelling at people on who wants to be a millionaire and morphing into a caricature of himself, he wasn't exactly the most thrilling to watch. Regis is fine. Well, he was at the time. He has since passed. But Rose isn't fine. As part of her nomination process, she has to list her accomplishments. Having them all on paper only magnified the fact that she finds them to all be hooey. Finally being supportive, Dorothy rebukes Rose's negative self-talk, reminding her of all the help she's done for those at the crisis center. Again, Rose's understanding of mental health is concerning when she fights back against Dorothy and Blanche's praise by saying she only talked to those people. Yeah, Rose, that's the work. That's therapy. That is support. Just talking and most importantly, listening. Rose's refusal to believe she has helped anyone or has any kind of gift forces Sophia to step up, literally. From the back counter, she makes her way to the table, telling the girls that God gives them a purpose. For Blanche, she ended up in a museum so she can share art with the world. Blanche agrees with a nod and a smile. Damn, I wish I could take compliments like that. For Dorothy, her gift allows her to help teach and support the youth of 1980s Miami. As for Rose's existence... Well, 
she's there because the rhythm or calendar method of birth control was popular at the time she was conceived. I guess her birth mother wasn't that good at keeping track of her period and ovulation days. Although the rhythm method is effective 75% of the time, that's only if you're doing it right. Well, that didn't help Rose feel better about herself, something Sophia can't be bothered with concerning herself with as she has a movie to catch. Probably a dirty one. There are a few options of films she could have been attending. Cocoon 2, The Return, Scrooged, Land Before Time, Ernest Saves Christmas. But Coco and I felt she probably decided on going to see Child's Play. He came alive in my hand. I, I... Oh, for God's sake. Why won't you believe me? Because I'm sane. This is Barkley sane and rational. No one believes the truth. Or lives to tell it. There's nothing nice about murder. And there's nothing innocent about child's play. She probably related to him being small and murderous. Wait, am I wait, who went to the movies? Sophia. Oh. I thought it was Rose for some reason. Oh, yeah, that's why I thought Child's Play for Rose because she's, you know, sort of a simpleton. Oh, yeah, she was like, oh, Child. But no, no, Sophia would go see Child's Play because of the murderous doll. She finds it relatable. She's totally cool with that. She would love to maybe bum goof a child with a a Child's Play (laughs) goof. Or it gave her ideas. She's like, I'm going to put a curse on myself so when I die... I inhabit a doll. Yeah, she's like, what? and my dying breaths, I have to get to a toy store <laughs> and bleed into a doll. That'll do it. Since neither Sophia's nor the other girl's words helped Rose feel better, she's going back to the bed she just crawled out of. All of this has Dorothy upset as she hates to see her friend upset. Blanche feels frustrated as well. Just like all of us, she just wishes her friend could see herself for the great person she is. That's when Dorothy gets an idea. Why don't they tweak Rose's resume to make it sound a little better? Taking it a little further with the suggestion of basically outright lying, Blanche is on board with the idea as she is quite good at it. It's kind of funny to see Dorothy, yet again, working on Rose's resume. Also, I don't know that it is a resume, especially when there's a portion talking about finding a baby bird outside its nest. So maybe the better word would be application? So back to Rose having found a little lost robin. Just make it an eagle that was lost during a rainstorm, which then led to a Noah's Ark-inspired flood. At first, Dorothy is a little hesitant to take the embellishments that far until she's reminded by Blanche that the readers will be St. Olafians, so the embellishments go in. Usually with an issue like that around the house, that would be the main storyline. How much will it cost? How will they pay for it? Did the person do a good job? Here we have Fred show up, imply that he fixed the AC, and then they just stay hot. Did they not pay him? Did he suck at his job? Was he unqualified because he was actually a serial killer? Anyway, it's as hot as the balls they were playing with at the start of the episode. Dorothy is still wearing long sleeves, this time in her purple and white horizontal striped shirt that has a collar, making it appear that she might be in layers. Go to hell. Blanche is next to her in a bright teal green jumpsuit and I think an undershirt or camisole. Sophia is in a house coat... When Rose comes in, and she too is overdressed in matching light seafoam pants and a long sleeve button-up shirt over a pink t-shirt. Do these ladies have a death wish? I'm trying to drop some weight. 
for like a competition or something. We got to sweat out our water weight. Yeah, for some uh, wrestling or something. I feel like you when I'm like, I'm I'm kind of cold. Let's turn the heat up. And you're like, you're not even wearing socks. And it's like that with them. You know, I had that thought earlier when you were reading a portion of this script <laughs> during this recording session. And I, I stayed mum. But yeah, I do. It does. So I see it, it now. I kinda... When you're hot, take the stuff off. When you're cold, put the stuff on. Thank you, Coco. Feet and hands and head. They get so cold so easily. <laughs> my little head, my little bald head. I put a hat on it all the time. It's so stupid. <laughs> Happy to see their sad friend, Blanche asks how Rose is feeling. Much better, thanks. She used an old trick that she read about where you look in a mirror, tell yourself you love yourself, and then wrap your arms around yourself. See? Positive self-talk works. That was a trick Phil used to do as well. He couldn't pass a mirror without reminding himself he was loved. This, of course, led to toxic displays of male aggression when he would get punched by another man when he said, I love you, to the mirrors in a public bathroom. Oh, boy. When the doorbell rings, Dorothy answers it and discovers three men who wander in. They are from the St. Olaf Woman of the Year Committee and they need to interview Rose. Because, yeah, the Woman of the Year definitely should be decided by three men. Seeing that all of them are in long coats, suits, and even scarves, the overdressed girls are even worried about the guys overheating. They, of course, being from St. Olaf, think they're overdressed because they're wearing ties, not overdressed as in they will die from dehydration at any moment. Lynn, Ben, and Sven, the Topplecoffle triplets, are being played by Doug Cox, Jim Dugan, and John Moody. Doug Cox is playing Sven. He appeared in Laverne and Shirley, Alice, ER, Private Benjamin, Quantum Leap, Knott's Landing, Days of Our Lives, Young Sheldon, Criminal Minds, Weeds, Christmas with the Cranks, Family Matters, Malcolm in the Middle, Doogie Howser, Babylon 5, but he might be best known for his role as The Beak, the kid who wore the hat and tuxedo shirt to prom, and Carrie, who meets his demise in a flame-engulfed gymnasium. He was also in another of our favorites, I Think You Should Leave, where for just a few seconds, he played a George H.W. Bush impersonator who was allowed to hit people. I like that they can hit. I think it's cool. Okay, thank you. And I think it's great. Thank great. you so much. Thank you. Is he with you? Busted. That's my George Bush. What the f*** are you doing? You can't hit. Both of you, go sit in the wagon. You may have seen Jim Dugan, who played Ben, in the live-action Flintstone films, both the original and Viva Rock Vegas, Coach, Who's the Boss, Family Matters, 30-something, Empty Nest, New Heart, Webster, My Stepmother is an Alien, Step by Step, Ellen, Hotel for Dogs, Evan Almighty, Murphy Brown, Buffy, Perfect Strangers, Ruthless People, Fame, Night Court, Moonlighting, and The Mask, where he played Detective Doyle. Bazooka? I have a permit for that. Picture of Kellaway's wife? What? Uh-oh. That's gotta hurt. <laughs> Get him! Style. Playing Lynn was John Moody, and he is a Pee-wee guy in that almost all of his career has involved Pee-wee Herman. He was Mailman Mike, he wrote for Pee-wee's Playhouse, he appeared in the Broadway show and the 2016 holiday special, not to mention he was the bus clerk in one of my all-time favorites, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Sorry, you missed it by five minutes. Sure, the triplets are all about the same height, and they have longer faces, but that's about it when it comes to similarities, as Dorothy points out. 
This is astonishing to the triplets as they are constantly having to remind their fellow St. Olafians which one they are. I would think just going by blonde, brunette, or curly would help, but I'm sure those Southsiders would mix that up too. This worked out well for the guys when they were little. They were always pranking their teachers. Doing more than the RNC or DNC or apparently anyone who works in the House of Representatives when it comes to checking the resume of their nominee, the triplets are going to walk through Rose's information and verify her stories. This, of course, causes Dorothy and Blanche to give each other looks of, oh crap, as they know her stories are a little embellished. As the triplets take their seat on the couch, Rose leaves to get them drinks, and Dorothy apologizes for the heat. They aren't bothered, and they still haven't taken off their coats. They can help the girls out with their heat problem, though. If Rose wins, they'll be flown to St. Olaf for the ceremony, where it can get as hot as the low 80s, but it's a dry heat. Or wet? I never know. It's just better than Florida. The guys imply that the interview is simply a formality, but that Rose has a great chance of winning. Hoping to keep the questions from being asked, Blanche tells them that Rose is too modest to talk about herself like they expect her to, but them's the rules. Appeasing her northern guests, Rose has made them hot cocoa, which they happily accept. Without so much as letting her get a seat, they start with the questions. So, that eagle you saved, how'd you get so brave to do so? Slightly confused, but no more than normal, Rose dismisses their excitement. It was just a bird, you guys. Okay, then, how about saving that school bus? Well, all she did was give them directions. When another brother reminds her that she saved them by redirecting them away from the washed-out bridge further down the road, well, she is shocked to hear it. As Rose starts to push back, diminishing her accomplishments, Dorothy steps in. Hey, guys, back off, she tells them. Rose is far too shy and humble to be asked all of these things. So how about it? Can she just win? I guess there were no other interviews to conduct and no other committee members to discuss the interviews with because right then and there, Rose Nyland is named St. Olaf's Woman of the Year. Oof-da! The time has come for an all-expenses-paid trip to St. Olaf. The girls are starting out in some sort of airplane. I texted a picture of it to my dad and he never got back to me because it's a weird plane. It looks like a World War I military craft or something. It looks like the plane that flies over the map in Indiana Jones yes. when he goes to Africa <laughs> or wherever. A little, a little, a bit, a little silver guy. Yes. With bulbous. Some, yeah, big roundy. Yeah. How does it stay up? And the inside, I would imagine, would be freezing and the loudest place you'd ever been. Just like, yeah, tin can in, in the sky. Freezing. <laughs> but tin the seats, can in the sky. Oh, oh, I love seeing the seats on these on oh, old planes. Yeah. Even though that's like a set, I feel like they were, they had yeah, to Yeah, they went and grabbed them from a plane. Oh, yeah. huge. The biggest. Two people in a row, forget it. Inside, the few passengers of the small aircraft are resting, killing time. Luckily, this must have been designed by someone who worked for Southwest, as the two front seats, where Blanche and Dorothy are sitting, are facing towards Sophia and Rose. Coco, did you ever ride on a Southwest flight that had the backward seats? I no, I did. I didn't know that was a thing. That sounds horrible. <laughs> it was. It was the very. It was the first two rows, and that was like peak my family going to Vegas all the time. So late '90s, early 2000s, and big gamblers. Yeah, <laughs> we're big whales. 
And those first two seats were turned. And so for a family of three or four, depending on who all was going, oh man, we were desperate to get that front row. So we could all be together. And then you're just there and all your stuff's in the middle. It's kind of nice. Except your seat didn't move at all because it was up against a wall. And if you got stuck there with another group of people, you were just intertwined. Mingling legs? Yeah. No, thank you. <laughs> Knees knocking together? Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to look at another guy. So it was the best know, and the worst. At, a, at crotches? Yeah. You had to go like leg, their leg, your leg, their leg, your leg. That's fairly intimate that's how lovers sit it, i mean it was enough you weren't you weren't touching but i would be <laughs> we do have a bit of a plot whoopsie here or perhaps feelings and dreams developed over time as we see blanche and dorothy are both enjoying okay they're not enjoying the flight but they aren't terrified as we will see in a later episode even when the pilot mentions the fastened seatbelt sign is broken and they need someone to come fix it, the two remain calm. The reason the ladies are in this small, rickety old plane is because the jetliner that took them from Miami to Minneapolis is too large for the runway in St. Gustav. And yes, they're flying into St. Gustav, a town that does not exist in real life, in case you were curious, before taking whatever land transportation is to an airportless St. Olaf. St. Olaf is so small, how small is it? Even the birds take land transportation to get there when they migrate. You would think the girls would have gone over the travel plans ahead of time, but they didn't want to go in the first place, so what did it matter? Rose calms Dorothy's annoyance by offering gratitude that they're not going to Beaver Falls. The reason it's good they aren't going to the land of Beav, when the passenger behind them hears Beaver Falls, he calls out that it's his stop. We don't know the name of the, I'm assuming, stunt person playing the role, but he pulls the cord, like that of a bus, dinging that he is exiting the plane. With a flinging off of his blanket, he reveals he's wearing two suits, a gray one and a para. Parachute, that is. Get it? Parachute? parachute. Yeah. Get it? I get it. I enjoyed it. <laughs> I don't know if it's funny, but I liked it. <laughs> The nail-filing flight attendant is unfazed, not taking her eyes off her hands as the man leaps out the side door. She only stops long enough to close the door behind him. With looks of, did I just see what I just saw? On Dorothy and Blanche's face, Rose simply responds with a look of her own, saying, see? All Rose can care about is how happy she is to get back home. Then again, she is a bit biased, as anyone can be when it comes to their hometown. Sophia agrees, she didn't care that when she went back home after years of being away, it was the same. Sex workers on the corner, trash everywhere, prosecuted criminals, or at least one would hope, were hanging by their heels. As Sophia gets verklempt with memories, an emotion Blanche just can't understand, especially with how horrible all that sounded, why would she cry over Sicily? Who said anything about Sicily? That was when she visited her first Brooklyn apartment. See, children, Brooklyn used to be a chaotic, rough-and-tumble place, not the land of hipsters and gentrification. What Rose is more excited about than even going home is that she gets to bring her friends with her and that they'll be there supporting her for the crowning achievement of her life. Still being dismissive, Blanche says she's happy to be with her while she gets her little plaque. This time, Rose does push back a little bit, explaining that this isn't about the award itself, but what it represents— not just to her, but to all of St. Olaf. This award serves as a reminder. The world may get ugly and nasty, 
but St. Olaf is a land of love and, most importantly, honesty. As Dorothy and Blanche try to hold back from vomiting, either words or their lunch, they promise her that she is well-deserving of the recognition. After the captain makes another call over the intercom, telling them they're in the final descent to St. Gustav, Rose finally clarifies what land transportation they'll be taking. First, the plane will land. Then they'll take a train to Zamburo Falls, which is a real place, 50 miles southeast of St. Olaf. Then a shuttle, which also seems vague. And in just a few days, they'll be in her homeland. The jerk! What? You're a dirtbag! I don't, I don't know about that. Again, having not gone through travel plans, the girls are horrified to hear it will be days before they're done traveling. Getting into their private room on the train to Zimbabwe, the ladies are all quite pissed at that rickety airline as all of their luggage was lost, meaning poor Blanche will have to go not only the weekend, but this multi-day trek without panties. Even Sophia knows Blanche likes to put some on by Sunday evening. Although, according to Sophia, Rose has lived in a fog most of her life. She isn't a fan of it. In this instance, it's because the girls won't be able to see Mount Luzenbaden. It's like Mount Rushmore, but instead of presidents, it's dedicated to those who lost their presidential bids. I wonder if Dorothy's grandmother ever made her way to Mount Luzenbaden to see her guy, Adelaide Stevenson, twice. Alf Langen was the Republican nominee for president in 1936. He only won two states when he ran against President Franklin D. Roosevelt. In addition to taking on a popular, well-liked president, there started to be stories of Alf disappearing as he wasn't big on traveling and he barely campaigned. Even after earning the nomination, he made no public appearances. As for Wendell Winkle, he too earned his place on Mount Losers at the hand of Franklin Roosevelt. Wendell was a lawyer and corporate executive, so it might surprise you to learn he ran as a Republican. Hold for laughter. Wilkie was running on the platform of let's get into World War II. The 1940 campaign wasn't the landslide ALF lost to, but Roosevelt beat Wendell with a 55% win. Roosevelt's run for a third term was just too much to compete with. Of course, Adlai is up there twice to acknowledge his two losses, which is explained to Blanche by Dorothy who is then quite upset to realize that she's starting to understand St. Olafian logic. Apparently, the name of the mountain having the name Loser in it is just a fluke, as there is a lake in the area with the same name. However, it can only be seen from the other side of the train. Perhaps loopy from all the travels, Sophia decides to go with her to go see the lake. Well, to see that and to get a gin and tonic. Finally alone for the first time, Dorothy moves to sit next to Blanche and has a suggestion of what they should do. I love so much that Blanche, while implying Dorothy is implying that they should do some railing, maybe even involving a caboose, Blanche isn't disgusted. She doesn't have some huge reaction. She doesn't even make it sound like she wouldn't be intimate with a woman. She's only turning Dorothy down because she sees her as a friend. But that's not even what Dorothy was talking about although I'm sure there's some fan fiction or adult parodies that bring this fantasy to life. What Dorothy wants to talk about is how they're going to handle the situation with Rose, how they've made her an unwilling accomplice to their lies. Dorothy feels that they need to come clean to Rose about what they did, and Blanche agrees. If anyone takes even a moment to verify her stories, she'll never be able to show her face at home again. Sophia and Rose are back from lake gazing, and I guess Sophia slammed her drink as she's empty-handed. Before Blanche can initiate the confession, Rose stops her. 
They're approaching the Zamburo Falls Tunnel, and they could be in danger. See, it's a cursed tunnel, and it has stories of people vanishing while the train passes through. Blanche scoffs at the idea, but Rose is dead serious. As they are engulfed in darkness, Blanche finds it easier to tell Rose that, um... Before she can get to exactly what they did, light floods back into the room and Dorothy sees, just as Rose warned, that her mother has disappeared. (coughs) Sophia hasn't been taken by the curse, though. She just needed to take a leak. Apparently, Rose didn't register what Blanche was trying to say because once Sophia was found safe, she didn't then turn to Blanche to ask her what she was saying. Instead, they unload from the train to get a ride on the shuttle to St. Olaf. And by shuttle, they mean a hay-filled wagon being pulled by a donkey. Well, a donkey and a driver. That driver's name is James Lashley, who tragically only had 68 credits to his name. You may have seen him in Justified, Bones, Gilmore Girls, The West Wing, Domestic Disturbance, The Michael Richards Show, The Practice, Walker, Texas Rangers, Seinfeld, Star Trek, The Next Generation, Murphy Brown, Columbo, Married with Children, 227, The Twilight Zone, Alice, and Howard the Duck. Right, right. As the girls rock in the tiny wagon, Sophia's sitting up front with the driver. Personally, I love how fake all of this looks. I love that I can picture them on the soundstage, part of the wagon on a moving device, a screen with twinkling lights emulating stars. It's kind of sweet, maybe because it's as simple as St. Olaf. Sophia would rather be at the front because the jackass up there smells better than the multi-day, zero-shower-having girls. The driver takes the compliment, even if it wasn't directed at him. Rose has nothing to complain about. She's loving the ride. She's loving the air. She loves the scenery. She loves the clear skies that allows them to see all the stars. Even Blanche is taken aback by the beauty and how without the light pollution of Miami, the stars look like they're just out of reach. Rose agrees. Many St. Olafians have actually hurt themselves falling off their roofs trying to grab a star or two. Getting closer to home, they pass an old treehouse, One Rose is quite familiar with, as she and her childhood best friend Ingrid would often find themselves playing there. The memories remind Rose of how much she misses her old friend. Blanche makes the suggestion that while she's in town, she gives Ingrid a call, an idea Rose quickly agrees with. So she literally calls out in what could be called a hillbilly holler. Hey, Ma! Get off the dang roof! Though we don't get to see Rose's friend Ingrid, we do know that the name behind the voice was Bridget Sienna. She has been in the biz since the early 80s and has appeared in Grey's Anatomy, Rain Man, Nip Tuck, ER, Frasier, Ellen, Mad About You, Blossom, Cagney and Lacey, The Jeffersons, St. Elsewhere, and famously as the Cashmere Lady in Seinfeld. Hit me with the other foot and you threw some change at me! Ah, but I didn't want to change, don't you? I wanted In just seconds, a Midwestern-accented voice calls back to Rose. They check in on how the other is doing and abruptly end the call. Happy to have spoken with her friend, Rose thanks Blanche for the idea. Sophia appreciates that two idiots could be brought together, and Dorothy says that could be the tagline for the St. Olaf Telephone Company. The St. Olaf Phone Company bringing two idiots together since 1907. Though the trip has been exhausting, they planned it perfectly as they're getting into town the night before the big ceremony. And after who knows how long in their blouses, dresses, ruffled collars, and jackets, the girls are pretty ripe. What does that mean? Ripe. 
Is that good? Ripe <laughs> is good, right? What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> you never heard that word? No, I know what ripe means, but I don't know exactly. Like, when you say, oh, the bananas are ripe, I don't know if it's like, they still need to be... So you don't know what ripe means. <laughs> When the driver overhears he's chauffeuring the woman of the year, he is delighted. He's also surprised Emma Emmerhofer didn't win after helping the homeless, running a soup kitchen, and an orphanage. First off, sir, driver, how dare you bring up a competitor, let alone brag about all of her good deeds, and in front of the woman of the year? After all of this time, Dorothy decides that, in earshot of the eavesdropping driver, it's time to spill the beans. When Dorothy can't find the words, Blanche takes over. She explains that out of love and support, they maybe changed her stories. Right away, she takes it for what it is, lies. But Dorothy pushes back. We didn't lie. And besides, you do so many good things. It's not like you don't deserve to win. I don't often relate to Rose, but in this case, I do. You want me to accept an award that is presented to someone for being good and honest, but I had to lie to get it? H-E double hockey clubs, no. I am not going through with making a scene out of something so sacred. There's no telling how many more miles on the wagon it will be, but Rose wants the driver to stop at the closest phone so she can call St. Olaf and tell them she's bowing out. It's been who knows how many days later, and Sophia and Dorothy are enjoying some coffee at the table when Ellen arrives. Are you suggesting that our girls will become athletes? If they want to win, yes. I'll be satisfied if you just use these activities to suppress their hormones. Can I have a key to the gym? Oh, you won't need one. Oh, great. Gym burned down three months ago. My apologies, that wasn't Ellen Burstyn. It's Blanche, Burstyn, into the kitchen in her favorite colorful robe, and she couldn't be happier to be home. Dorothy is just as grateful, so much so she wants to kiss all the furniture. Sophia recommends she try and get a date so she won't have such urges. As Sophia in her pink nightgown and Dorothy in her gray sweater exchange looks, Rose comes in, in what I believe is a not-yet-seen yellow sweater with a squared collar and random floral prints. Though Rose is giving them the silent treatment, Blanche and Dorothy push for forgiveness. They apologize and guilt her by saying they were just doing it out of love and they hate when she's mad at them. She quickly forgives them and can acknowledge the situation for what it is. Her two friends, who thought she was so deserving of the award, fudged a little. But the intent wasn't to embarrass or cause any problems. Besides, how can she be mad at people she shared over 500 cheesecakes with? I know there is an actual cheesecake count somewhere that says the girls have eaten on screen about 100 cheesecakes. That means they're eating four cheesecakes for every one we see them eat on screen. Rose also came to the realization her friends were raised in Brooklyn and Atlanta. Of course they don't know any better than to lie, cheat, and steal to get what they want. Again with the back door. This time it's Dr. Harry Weston. Blanche is more than happy to realize he's there, and she's only in her silky blue nightgown and flowing robe. Thank God. This is our introduction to Richard Mulligan playing Dr. Harry Weston. The love for the character actor would lead to Dr. Weston appearing in the Golden Girls spinoff Nurses and then starring in his own spinoff series, Empty Nest. He got his first role in 1962, acting until his death at just 67 years old in 2000. His over 80 credits earned him an Emmy and Golden Globe, both for Empty Nest. In 1993, he earned his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. 
From Car 54, Where Are You, to the Partridge Family, he appeared on every popular show through the 60s to the 80s. Before Empty Nest, he was best known for playing Burt Campbell on Soap for four years. Some of his last roles were providing his voice to animation, like Oliver and Company, which was another film Sophia could have seen in the theater, Hey Arnold, and Angry Beavers. But let's be honest, Bear the Dog playing Dreyfus, he's the real star of the show. His portrayal of Dreyfus is iconic. At just two years old, he was taking Hollywood by storm, garnering laughs with the girls before he went on to basically carry Empty Nest. Since I haven't heard of Bear breaking any world records, it's safe to assume he passed away in the 90s. As far as his background, well, Bear was a Nepo baby. For those that don't waste your days on the internet like I do, Nepo or nepotism babies are quite hot right now. Apparently, people are just now realizing the saying, it's not what you know, but who you know, was legitimate. According to the South Florida Sun Sentinel, Bear was a mutt, not to say his parents weren't stars. His father, Boomer, who was part German Shepherd, part Golden Retriever, was in the Western drama Father Murphy and played alongside John Candy in Summer Rental. Bear's mama, Molly the St. Bernard, was in Steel Magnolias. The doctor is calling in a bright blue tracksuit and gray shirt because Blanche called him to bring their mail that he had been gathering during their St. Olaf opus. Blanche's flirtation is at a 10 when she asks Harry why she hasn't had him over for dinner. She ups the ante, saying she needs to see him for an examination. Who cares that he's a pediatrician or a child's doctor? It's not that she's sick. Nervous and flustered, Harry stammers and mumbles his way out the door, taking Dreyfus on a walk. Horny, Blanche desires a prescription of one Harry every four hours. In the pile of mail is a box, and it's addressed to Rose. As she starts to open it, Dorothy reminds Blanche that Harry is a recent widow. Sure, he's eligible, but they all agreed no one would pursue him until 18 months had passed. And that day is today. Good thing Sophia still isn't in Sicily. Otherwise, she would have had to wait to date for 20 years or until she grew a mustache. Unconcerned with the fact that it seems like Dorothy is interested in dating Harry, Blanche points out that his money, job, looks, and personality are basically tailored to her. Everything about him screams Blanche. And when she's done with him, he'll literally be doing so. Do we talk about how great Richard Mulligan's voice is? Oh, I love his voice. Oh, so Because he's got rich. those jowls. Yeah, is that what brings out the richness in his voice? And he's just a tall drink of water. Yeah. Oh, Very handsome, yeah. silver fox daddy. Super handsome. I love, yeah. And yeah, I think it's something about his cheeks and the way they are on his face. It's almost his like, eyes too. He, he has, has like big, uh, expressive round eyes. He yeah. has kind of a jumbly mouth. Yeah. When he talks, it's a little like, a little marble, yeah. Which is great. And it I love works. It. it works. Getting the box open, Rose finds it's the trophy for St. Olaf Woman of the Year. The large gold eyesore was presented to her because her honesty about what happened with the nomination showed just how truthful and St. Olafian she was. So the lying actually worked in her favor. As for her biggest competition, Emma Imahoffer, they did some digging and found a skeleton in her closet. No, not some deep, dark secret. Just her husband, Mr. Imerhofer. As Blanche looks the trophy over, she realizes it's not solid. That's when Rose gives her great news. Well, it's not a trophy. It's a trophy-shaped piece of chocolate. Before they dig into it, the girls share their excitement with Rose. 
In a rare moment of sincerity and support, Sophia stands up and congratulates Rose for being the St. Olaf Woman of the Year. Oofda. Coco, I don't think you had seen this episode before. Is that accurate? Or if you had, it was many, many moons ago. Yeah, it was in, in 1988. Yeah, it's been a yeah, long time. And I think you and I agree. I don't dislike the episode. It's just very sitcom-y and not a lot of meat on the bones. Yeah, it seems like it gets more bad sitcom-y the farther they get away from Miami from their Can you talk home. about that theory of yours? I liked that. What was that? About distance in sitcoms. You were saying the farther a show gets. Uh, I mean, I think that's true. Like, the yeah, the farther they stray from home, the worse it gets. I mean, one of the best examples for me from my childhood was married with children when they went to England. Oh, no. It is the worst thing you've ever seen. Oh. It is so awkward and awful, and it looks, uh, the filming looks British. You know what I mean? Oh, like uh-huh. the Yeah, it looks like that. Everything looks like a soap opera. <laughs> so just for that, it's true. But, but. I mean, yeah, it's not, it's I not... mean, look at Hawaii episodes of things and or um, I always think of Full House going to Disney World because they were ABC. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think that's a good theory. There are part of that is hilarious in this episode, though, like how it changes from uh, the plane to the train going down the tracks, to oh, the rickety wheels. The cut to the wagon wheel yeah. killed me. Yeah. That was so funny. So it's still hilarious. It's just, and it also feels like stuff we've kind of touched on, like they didn't actually get to go to St. Olaf. Yeah. So it was all just the travel. We had the episode with her job hunting where she changed the resume. So it's something we've already had before and there's no other story at all. And the air conditioner, I guess. Yeah, but it doesn't really. You know, it's like the, it's a little bit, it's nice when like the, the plots sort of push each other. Yes. Like the air conditioning should have led to St. Olaf or, or, yeah. or that thing or something, discovering. Yeah, it. instead they were like, you can go there and it's cooler. Yeah, that's that's pretty weak. Yeah. Yeah, I do like when they kind of feed on each other. So it, I it, give it down the middle. I just give it like a, a three star. Yeah, it was. Oh, yeah, it made me laugh. The parachute yeah. bit was was uh, a great. That was like something out of the movie Airplane. Yes. Exclamation <laughs> point. That was so funny. So, uh, yeah, middle of the road. Yeah. Sometimes friends, family, and other loved ones don't know how to express their love for you. Sure, the girls could have gone about showing Rose in a way that didn't involve lying, but they didn't know any better. The real lesson from today's episode is learning how to love and celebrate yourself. I've been working a lot on learning to love myself, and work it is. I have to learn that celebrating myself isn't bragging, it's showing myself love. And it doesn't matter what my accomplishments look like compared to others, because I'm not them. For example, I've always wanted to write a book. As of February 14th, I'm a published author. Now, I could easily dismiss it like Rose did, saying, oh, it's just a short story in a compilation, but I'm not going to diminish my success, and neither should you. So get out there and celebrate yourself. Treat yourself to a dinner and movie date, or curl up with a favorite show and beverage, or eat an entire trophy made out of chocolate. In whatever fashion you celebrate, Don't forget to celebrate you. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for being a friend. Be sure to join us next week when we get wrapped up in another one of Stan's scams in Bang the Drum, Stanley.
Oh, yeah. I meant to say shoot. I said smelled, but I meant something else. Haunted. I don't know what that was. <laughs> <laughs> How many babies are called Hyli? A hundred? You don't think there's any babies named Hyli? Five. Gmail us. <laughs> eh, don't. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to talk to you. No. Get out of here. <laughs> Get the hell out of here. <laughs> She ever do nudity? Still kidding. <laughs> Definitely not. Maybe at home. Maybe. <laughs> In her own home? Yeah, I hope yeah, so. Yeah, I would hope so. Well, you, you never know. You never do. <laughs> She's a never nude? Yeah. Yeah, I feel like TV Guide now, you literally couldn't hurt a fly with. But oh, old school TV Guide, you could kill cockroaches. You could just be holding it at like your, your chest level and drop it onto a cockroach and it yeah. would definitely kill it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, if you have a name that's an item, you got to know how to spell other items, man. Well, look at how he spelled quail. There's an I and an E in there, aren't there? A Y. Oh, a Q-U-A-Y-L-E? Yeah. So oh he had no God. chance. Look at me spelling potato right now. <laughs> I'm on your side now, Danny. You did oh, nothing Danny wrong. Boy. Oh, Danny boy. Home Alone. He's they're an Oompa band, aren't they? They are. There might be a there might be, might be a, an Oofta. An Oofta and an Oompa. Oompa Loompa. Oompa Loompa. Little Oofta. People. That's not a corn husk. You know I'm playing my head is like a shark. <laughs> Obviously. Spin. She's great in the Sopranos. <laughs> <laughs> the only people I've ever known to have an above oven Devin are Mormons. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> I'm just saying they're always, you, you got to be baking the cookies and cooking the casserole yeah, for the to, 50 kids. They got to cook a lot of food. That makes sense. How do we, we, I, three minutes, she's, mm, that's an inappropriate comma. Dork, dorky. <laughs> Ooh, that hurts my teeth. Ow. <laughs> it doesn't take long for Blanche's visit. Visualization. Ooh, perky bosoms. <laughs> Ow. You okay? Yes. I mean, uh, yep. <laughs> Ow. Are you okay? Yeah, fine. Okay. Ow. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine. Totally fine. <laughs> uh, oh, I'm sorry. Could you hear that moan? That moan of pain. Ouch. Is that why everyone wore hats back then? Well, I think it's why we have hair. <clears throat> That's mean. No. You don't have hair, therefore, automatically colder. That's all. I heard what I wanted to hear. <laughs> <laughs> you always do. Yep. As for her biggest competition, Emma, I'm a her... <laughs> what about Beethoven? Where's he in all this? Um, his name was Chris with a K. No, that's a terrible dog. That name. is that sucks. That's the worst dog name I've maybe ever heard. Always be my sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always be my sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.